If you have a Bible, if you'd like to open it to Genesis chapter 11, we'll be looking at the latter part. Genesis chapter 11. We're going to verses 27 to 32 this morning. For those of you who haven't been with us, we've been slowly working through the book of Genesis. Uh, Starting in chapter 1, going all the way here to 11, and we're seeking to build a biblical worldview. Seeking to, to... have the way that we look at the world shaped by scripture and we want to continue to do that uh, even this morning kind of as we kind of wrap up our series here as we look at Genesis the latter part of Genesis 11 I hope to first connect it with the rest of Genesis and you can see how it's so interconnected and one of the main points I really want us to get we're going to focus on the calling of God in Abraham's life in our in our lives and then as we kind of finish Genesis 1 to 11 we're gonna actually spend some time and, and just look back at where some of the lessons God has taught us as we went through this scripture and there has been a lot we won't always be able to do this as we're going through books of the Bible I think we start to get into God the Gospels or maybe the book of Acts you won't have time to stop and reflect but I think it's actually very helpful that we would do that in our day and age we're not good at stopping and looking back you know we swipe to the next thing we run to the next thing whatever happened yesterday it's old news what's new today and so we're going to spend some time and just i think some kind of major themes that's like we've learned about this in genesis 1 to 11 don't forget that let's take that with us as we continue seeking to build a biblical worldview so um as we read god's word this morning if you want to stand with me as we read Genesis 11, uh, 27 to 32. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred and Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, she had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the father of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. May God bless his word to our souls this morning. You can have a seat. So I've titled this message kind of two parts. First is the end of the beginning. What I just mean is like Genesis, the beginning you know, book of the Bible. It's the end of kind of our series 1 to 11. And then there's kind of the second part is keep building, which we're going to talk about. That's going to be my encouragement for us. But before going on any further, I'm just going to uh, seek the Lord again in prayer. You want to bow with me? Oh Lord, my heart's already uh, filled with joy. I'm singing songs to your name. Lord, just having... The Frasers up here, Kyle and Joy and little Elliot. God, and now as we open up your word, I pray, Holy Spirit, you'd use your servant. 
uh, to proclaim it. God, I pray you give us open ears and open hearts and that you would speak to us through your word this morning. Oh God, may you lift up again the name of Jesus Christ. May he be honored and glorified. God, I can't do that. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do that as we gather together in your name. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So just beginning, first I just want you to see kind of a big picture, like what is going on here. Uh, 11 verse 27, it starts a new section, yet it connects with that which came before. And I want to show you that what came before. If you weren't with us last week, we looked at Genesis 11, 1 to 9. We looked at the story of the Tower of Babel. And if you don't know, so the story of the Tower of Babel, God said to uh, Noah and his sons when they got off the ark, be fruitful and multiply, like spread out, fill the earth. And it seemed like all humanity said, no, we're going to go to one place. We're going to build a tower. We're not going to disperse. And they built the tower. We want to be like God. They want to reach the heavens. We'll kick. We know what happened. God came down. They got scattered. God's will was done. Everyone got different languages to speak. So that, that is what we looked at last week. Genesis 11 explains why the people were scattered. Genesis 10 actually describes the dispersion and the nations that are formed and the people that moved. And if you'll notice with me, Genesis 10, it begins this way. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. And if you've been with us walking through this series, you'll note that every time it says these are the generations, it's a marker in Genesis. Here's a new section. All throughout. And I just want to point that out to you because then if you look at Genesis 11:10, it says these are the generations of Shem. So first there's broadly, there's like all of Noah's sons in Genesis 10, Genesis 11:10. Now they're going to one son. These are the generations of Shem. I want you to notice a few things here, but we're not going to read it. If you just gaze with your eyes down from 10 to 26, you'll notice that the ages change. People start living less, start having kids earlier. That's one thing you would notice. Another thing you should ask, like, why Shem? There's Noah's three sons. Why would all of a sudden narrow down to one and, and start talking about Shem? Well, in, in Genesis 9, verse 26, Noah, he cursed one of his sons. He blessed two or their descendants after them actually and and Noah said this to to Shem Genesis 9 26 he also said blessed be the Lord the God of Shem he kind of set him apart and not him but his descendants after him and the reason why Shem gets singled out is he is going to be the one the one is going to come from him and if you don't know the one I'm talking about I just want to bring your attention Genesis 3 15 Adam and Eve they sinned in the garden and the first one to be cursed was the snake. And Genesis 3.15, God says this to the snake and to, to Eve. I will put enmity between you and the woman, to the snake, and between your offspring and her offspring. And speaking of a descendant that's going to come from Eve, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. And the rest of scripture, the rest of genealogies is asking, who is the one? The one to come who's going to crush the head of the snake. I just want to bring that your attention to that this morning. It's going to come from Shem's line. That's why Shem gets singled out in this list of names. 
from his line, someone's going to come and going to crush the head of the snake. This, this promise in Scripture. So one is going to come. It's going to be the Messiah. And if you'll notice how Genesis 11.26 ends, or sorry, yeah, 11.26, the line of Shem. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And then you turn the page, or in my Bible I turn the page, you look at the next verse. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran fathered Lot. It's a new section of scripture. So you have Shem's line. First in Genesis 10, you have like all, this, all the sons of Noah. Then you go to Shem's line. And Genesis 11, 27, now we're going with a specific person, Terah and his three sons. What is happening here? I want you to see that like, as Abraham is introduced, his story doesn't end until he dies. In Genesis chapter 27, verse, verse 7. Think about Adam and Eve maybe got like two, two and a half chapters in the Bible. Abraham gets 13. And so all of a sudden, going from this wide group of people, everyone off the ark, going to Shem, one kind of line, and then going from that to like one person, Terah, three sons, three sons, Abraham introduced, and the story follows him. Why is that? Think about it. It's very broad at first. Who's going to come? Who's going to be the one? Who's going to be the Messiah? The one who's going to crush the head of the stake? They come from Shem's line. They come from Terah. It's going to come from Abraham. So from going from like many people to one, and from that one person, if you know the story, God is going to make a nation, and from that nation, He's going to bring the Messiah. This is what's happening here. This is why it is so important. Alan Ross says this, With this passage, the focus of the book narrows from the wider history of the human race to that of one family. If you notice, we're going to read, there's this list of names. I want you to notice all the foreshadowing that takes place, or just some of it. And I, students, are students finished school? Like, who, who is a student who just finished school? Is there any, any, there's, nice. There, there's a few of you here. So you hear the word foreshadowing, you're like, we're not supposed to be learning or talking about that anymore. <laughs> but it's okay, because it's on a Sunday morning, and we're talking about the Bible. But like the foreshadowing, there's all these names that play significant roles coming in the future. We're just going to think about that just for a moment. There's Haran who fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred and Ur of the Chaldeans. There's even foreshadowing this message. I'm just going to tell you a little bit about Ur. It's a modern day Iraq. One writer says this, the inscriptions record about the city Ur, a populous city inhabited by artists and merchants, frequented by numerous strangers, since all the important trade routes of the ancient world running from Alam, India, and southern Arabia to the countries in the north and west converged there. It was a very influential city, Ur. We're going to talk more about that, a little foreshadowing. It's going to play into the message a little bit. But Haran came and he died and he had Lot. And we know about Lot, if you know anything about Genesis, plays a significant role at times. He's Abraham's nephew. He's part of the family. He comes under Abraham's care. And then if, if you know also there's this, this sexual sin that happens with Lot and his daughters after Sodom and Gomorrah. And from that, you get two nations, the Moabites and the Ammonites, who are continually fighting against Israel. These people are introduced here 
in this list of names. In verse 29, And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Again, if you're in the future having children, there's just a great list of names. Little, little Milcah running around. When Nahor mar- marries Milcah, <laughs> they appear back in Scripture like this couple. When Abraham wants a wife for his son, Isaac, like, sorry, spoiler alert, there's a son that's coming. <laughs> but I just want you to see, like, so Nahor marries Milcah. From there, she has a son, and their son has a daughter. The daughter's name's Rebecca. And then Isaac marries Rebecca, Abraham's son. And then, and then Rebecca has a brother. Sorry, I lost his name for a second. I shouldn't. Laban. How could I forget Laban? Rebecca's brother Laban, and he has two daughters, Rachel and Leah. Right? And then Isaac's son Jacob marries Rachel and Leah. And from Leah comes the tribe of Judah, from whom the snake crusher comes. The Messiah. I just like this is all packed into this is a small list of names, hugely significant in scripture moving forward. But actually, I should not making fun of Milka. Apparently, the name could mean queen. And every time she's mentioned, she's always mentioned before Nahar, which is like it's different in scripture that that would happen. Usually, it's like the husband first. So, Milka was actually quite significant as well. Continuing on, kind of this list of names, verse 30. Now Sarai was barren and she had no child. Again, if, if you've been with us as we looked at Genesis chapter 5, we looked at a whole genealogy, if you can imagine, <laughs> on a Sunday morning. And, and anytime you read a gene- genealogy, what you need to do is like spot the pattern. And then anytime it breaks away from the pattern, it's very significant. So it's a significant statement that Sarai was barren. And if you've grown up in the church, you know more of the story. And, and if you haven't, if you've never actually read Genesis, I would encourage you after today to continue to read Genesis, continue to read more of the story. It's a big deal that one day she had a child. Do we not see this pattern in Scripture? Where women not able to have children and then are able to, and their children are called by God for His purposes. Just, just a few examples in Judges 13, there's uh, Manoah is the husband. Actually, the wife's not named. They crawl to the Lord for a child, and they have Samson. And of course, Samson, he fights against God's enemies. And then there's Hannah, and her husband is Elkanah. And, and they are not able to have a child. And she cries out to God, and God grants her prayer. And she's able to have little baby Samuel, the prophet, who, who brings in the first king Saul and the second King David. And then the New Testament, we know of uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah, and they weren't able to have a child. They cried to the Lord and John the Baptist. So we see this pattern in Scripture when you all of a sudden it's pointed out and they weren't able to have children. What's God going to do? And He's going to do something amazing. So this is all kind of loaded in here in this Scripture. We have this list of names, but really the importance is what comes next. This family is not staying put. Now next I want us, we're going to focus, zero in on God's calling. Look at verse 31 with me. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson. 
and Sarah, his daughter-in-law, his son Abraham's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. It's interesting. They, so we know where they're from. We know where they plan to go. But they don't get there all the way. Of course, if you, if you know more of the story, they, I'm going to tell you a little bit this morning of what happens. But first question, where are they coming from? I want to tell you a little bit about Ur of the Chaldees. Because I'm sure people are like, oh yeah, no, I've been. Like, no, you haven't been there. It's an ancient city. <laughs> you know you know it got wiped out but Ur of the Chaldeans everyone know where that is again it's in it's in southern Iraq I'm just gonna say this about I'm reading from uh, the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible because again I don't know about Ur of Chaldeans so I'm gonna tell you what I've read it's a it's a quite a city the results of archaeological investigations demonstrate that Abraham came from a great city cultured sophisticated and powerful the landscape was dom dominated by the ziggurat. And the life of the city was controlled by religion with a multiplicity of gods. The chief, chief deity was, was Sin, the moon god, who was also worshipped at Haran. In fact, Vance Nelson, he pointed out to me that the, the ziggurat in Ur of Chaldees is actually one of the oldest ziggurats. It's probably, you know, it's close to where Babel was. So copied after that, they continued the worship idols. Many clay tablets found at Ur tell of the business life of the city, which focused on the temples and their income. Some tablets dealt with religion, history, law, and education. Students were instructed in reading and writing in cuneiform script. They were taught multiplication and division. Some were even able to extract square and cube roots. I just found that interesting, the math, the technology that they had going on at that time. I bet you they didn't take summer vacation. Oh. So we're, we're thankful for the time that we live in. But it's like, wow, the, even the math they're doing, training up the, the next generation. So Ur was like, it was a big deal. It was a big city. It was powerful. I read earlier that there were different roads that inter, intersect from India, from Syria, from Arabia. And so it was like a powerful place. So why? Why would they leave Ur of Chaldees? Why would they leave there? Scripture doesn't tell us why Terah decided to pack up and leave Ur, taking his family with him, but it, buzz, it does tell us about the calling of his son. We know about Haran, or sorry, we know about Terah. Verse 32, it says, The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. And just reading the next section, we know about the calling of Abraham from Haran. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Many of us know this scripture well. I can't wait one day to preach from that section. I'm not going to do it today, but I just want you to see God called Abraham while he was in Haran to go. But also I want to show you now that actually I believe God called Abraham when he was in Ur. And, I, and I'll show you why that's significant in a second. So Ur of Chaldees, it's mentioned four times in the Bible. We just read two of them. The other one is, is Genesis 15, 7. 
Abraham's, Abraham's in the promised land. And God said this to them, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So maybe not proving that he was called there, but God's like, I called you out. Another time it's mentioned is in Nehemiah chapter 9. This is far uh, into Israel's history. They're recounting what happened. And when you recount Israel's history, you start with Abraham, Nehemiah 9 verse 7. Speaking of God, you are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. F.F. Bruce says this, when it's stated in Genesis 15, 7 and Nehemiah 9, 7, that God brought Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees, it's probably implied that Abraham received a divine communication there as well as later when he settled in Haran. Ancient uh, historians Philo and Josephus concur there. But I think more than that, I want to just show you, because it does speak in scripture of Abraham when he's in Ur of Chaldees getting a calling to go. If you'll just turn or, or listen, I'm going to just look at Acts chapter 7, verses 2 to 4. Acts chapter 7, we're just jumping into this section of scripture with Stephen. He's on trial with the Sanhedrin. If you think of Jesus' time, Jesus had to stand in front of the Sanhedrin, the religious rulers. He was condemned to be crucified. Now one of his followers, Stephen, who's been preaching the name of Jesus Christ and has been falsely accused, stands in front of them. And as he starts to give his, his story, his account, well, where do you start? You start with Abraham. Acts chapter 7, verses 2 to 4. And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And maybe it was easier if I just would have read that part first in, in retrospect, but... And he said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Now, I just want to really show you that, that Abraham, you got called in Ur of Chaldees. Go. And he went. And they went to Haran and stopped. And then God called them again in Haran to go. And why is that significant? I think it's so significant because we, because they didn't continue on in the Bible. Abraham is known as a man of faith. He, he obeyed God and he went. As we read scripture, if we grab some of the details, he did go. And even it says in Genesis eleven thirty-one that they all planned to go. Terah and the family, they planned to go to Canaan. And on their way to Canaan, they stopped in Haran. Doesn't tell us why they stopped in Haran. Haran was also a significant place of the worship of sin, the moon god. It was a strong economic city. But the reason I'm pointing this out is when we think of Abraham being a person of obedience, he did go out in faith, not knowing where he was going, but he stopped along the way for a time. He got called in Ur of Chaldees and he's going and we remember and he's faithful and then he stopped. And God called him again and he went. We don't think about that. When we think about Abraham, even in, in Hebrews 11, 8, hey, he's a man of faith. He just went. But as we look at scripture, he went and he stopped and God called him again and he went. And I think, why is that significant? 
Because living for Jesus Christ is done in obedience. Jesus says, those who love me will keep my commandments. And so we want to be faithful. We want to walk where he tells us to walk. We want to go where he tells us to go. We don't always do it well. We stumble along the way. I'm just looking at Abraham. Hey, go to Canaan. He's like, okay, I'm going. And he stopped. And God in his mercy told him to keep going. So friends, what about you? What is God calling you to do? What is he calling you to be a part of? What is holding you back from it? Is there a person that you know, I, I need to share the love of Jesus Christ with this person. And you've been hesitating. Go. Be obedient to that. Is there a ministry you're, you're supposed to get involved in? Even in, in, if you want to follow Jesus Christ, maybe there's someone or something in your life like, I shouldn't be there anymore. And in obedience, you need to remove that. I was saying like Abraham, when he go to Canaan, he stopped in Haran. God in his mercy called him to keep going. I'm just, what is God calling you to do? To be obedient to that by the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing you're not going to do it perfectly. Because I want you to see this this morning. Who did God call? He called Abraham. And you're like, man, I've heard his name 20 times. I'm sorry, I'm just going to keep telling you. He called Abraham. And from where did he call Ur of the Chaldeans. And what was their religion? The moon god Sin. The ziggurat to reach the heavens. They're worshiping the sky. God called Abraham a worshiper of pagan idols. I want you to see that. That's who God called. Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. Everyone rebelling against God. God scatters them. We see that in Genesis 10, just nations and languages. And from there, God's like, I'm still going to bring my promised Messiah, this snake crusher. Who am I going to choose to start this new nation? Abraham. He's going to choose Abraham. God calls him to be the one from whom he will form a new nation. He even says... About Abraham and his people, Joshua 24, as they move into the promised land, this is later on in Scripture. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahar, and they served other gods. I just want you to see, God called a pagan worshiper to be the one from whom the Messiah would come. How amazing is that? Why Abraham? It wasn't because God saw that Abraham was going to choose God. It wasn't because God saw that Abraham was going to drop all his idols. God called them idol in hand. What is that a picture of? It's a picture of the mercy and the kindness of God. That God does everything for his own glory. We see this pattern in the Bible over and over again. If you think of back in the day, or maybe on the schoolyard, kids still do that, and they're picking teams. Say it's for a soccer team or a baseball team. And you're picking teams. You want like the biggest, the fastest, the best kids. Right? And you think about how God is choosing His people to accomplish His purposes. I want you to see He chooses the weakest. He chooses the broken. 
He chooses those who don't have it together. Why? So he would get the most glory. He does it with Abraham. I just want to show you two other examples in Scripture. I think it's significant. Gideon. In Judges chapter 6, maybe you heard his story before. Judges chapter 6. Just reading a little bit from there. The calling of Gideon. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat underneath the terebinth. is a tree at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Aberzite. While his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Valor. What's Gideon doing? When you're like beating out wheat, apparently you're supposed to go up high on the hill so the wind can take away the chaff. Where's Gideon? He's hiding in the wine press because the Midianites are coming. They're going to attack the land. He's scared. He's cowering. The angel of the Lord calls him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. I love it. Gideon's weak. He even says in, in Gen, or Judges 6.15, talking with the angel of the Lord, he said, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, one of the tribes of Israel, and I'm the least in my father's house. I'm the weakest. And then, then later on, God calls him to tear down this altar of, of Baal, and it says he does it at night because he's scared of everyone else. This is Gideon. And then when God calls Gideon, his spirit comes upon him, he goes... And, and 32,000 people gathered around. God said, that's, that's too many. And so it gets Gideon to announce, hey, anyone who's scared can go home. 22,000, like, all right, it's been fun. And they're gone. 10,000 left. God's like, it's too many. And so how they go and how they drink water separates them. Again, there's 300 left. 300 with Gideon. God's like, now, any victory, I get the glory. That's what God does with Abraham. That's what God does with Gideon. And in the New Testament, I just want to bring your attention to Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. Verses 1 to 10. Speaking of Jesus, he entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was on account of the crowd. He could not because he was small in stature. We talked about this last week. Tax collectors were hated people. They are like the outcasts of society. No one liked them. And I love it shows in scripture. He couldn't see because of his small stature. He was a hated short guy. This is, this is who Zacchaeus was. But in verse 3, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was oh, small in stature. And so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way, like a big crowd going. He's up in the tree. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, this is the people around him, the religious rulers, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. If I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. What do we see here? We see repentance from Zacchaeus. He meets with Jesus Christ and he's like, I, I've sinned. This is my sin. I'm laying it before you. And then what does Jesus say? Jesus says to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he also is his son of Abraham. 
on what Jesus says. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's, that's who he came. He came for Abraham, worshiper of idols. For Gideon, like scared of his own shadow. Zacchaeus, the short hated God. He came to seek and to save the lost. That's who God chooses. That's who he chooses those on his team, those who can't do it themselves, those who are hurting and broken. I'm wondering, is, is that you today? If you're here today and, and you don't have a walk with Jesus Christ, you're trying to do it on your own, I say, you can't. You cannot live a life pleasing to God on your own. We all have sin in our lives. It separates us from God the Father. That's why Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life and died on a cross and was buried and rose again. Everyone who would put their faith and trust in Him would be forgiven. The lost found. The broken built back up again. Friends, I just want you to think about this again as you think about Abraham and Gideon and Zacchaeus. Just think about yourself. Your own calling. I'm just going to read it. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31 says this, For consider your calling, brothers, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And that because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Friends, do you think Abraham could boast? No, God called him. Pagan worshiper of idols. You think Gideon could boast? Gideon couldn't boast. God did it all. Think Zacchaeus could boast? Zacchaeus couldn't boast. If you're in Jesus Christ, it's God's mercy. And the only thing we can boast about is how good God is. How merciful and kind He is. How amazing is Jesus Christ? Has God called you to Himself? Have you believed in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of His sins? Do you have His Holy Spirit and you then boast in Christ? Make much of God and seek to be obedient to Him. Seek to live for Him. As Abraham did. There's this song they sang in Haiti. I won't sing it for you. My wife said, don't do that. <laughs> but it goes like this. I want to live just like Abraham. Obeying God without a question. Sounds better in Creole. <laughs> but that's it. But even as we talk about obeying God without a question, we know Abraham didn't do it perfectly. He went and they stopped. God called him again. That's, that's how we, we seek to be obedient. We do the best we can. We stumble along. God is so kind and He's so graceful. May we do this. May we seek to live out our faith, even though we'll stumble and fail at times. A big way in which we seek to live out our faith in this time is by having a growing, increasing, developing biblical worldview in which we see what's important, what's true, and what's not. It's, I just want to kind of move this section now to reflect on Genesis 1 to 11 to encourage you to keep building. Keep building. As we looked at Genesis 1 to 11, that's my desire. Build a biblical worldview. I've been so blessed. I pray you have been too. As we look at this foundational 
section of the first book of the Bible. And I want to spend some more time thinking through some of the big things we've covered in Genesis 1 through 11. Of course, we can't cover it all, but there's certain things that like, we can't forget. Things that should stick with us, should continue to shape how we see the world. My, my desire is to just say them briefly. We've talked about them. I preach through them. I just like bring them back to your attention. So I'll kind of give you the, the titles and we'll move through faster. I pray. <laughs> the first is just like God. <laughs> no, like God, our picture of God should be ever increasing. Genesis 1.1. Do, people, do we still have it memorized? I know I meant in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was God. There was nothing else. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet He made everything. So that's one thing we need to, if you want a biblical worldview, you need to know about God. You need to know about God ever increasing. Second, God made everything in six literal days. As we looked at the text, it's so clear. God says in Genesis 1, this is what a literal 24-hour day is. This is how He created. I want you to see this. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't through millions and billions of years. But a question for you, it's like, do you see this world as creation with order and purpose? Or do you see it as mother nature, randomness and chaos? These are kind of like these two competing worldviews we have. And I, and I pray if you'd see it as creation, it would change the way we take in the outdoors. The sun, the stars, hearing the birds singing. As we've been going through Genesis, I have an office that looks out on the sky and over and over again, I'm like, yes, God created that. I hear the birds singing, it's beautiful. Glory to God, He made them that way. And so as we go out and experience the beauty of God's creation, are you going to keep putting your eyes upward to the Lord? Can we keep doing that? God made everything in six days. I want us to not forget how important it is. All these are hugely important. I don't know which one you take out. God made us male and female. He determines our function and purpose. We don't have to wonder and search high and large for our identity. It's found in knowing God. And think about how knowing God and believing His Word anchors us in truth in an ever-changing world. You picture someone in a boat putting the anchor down. If you don't have an anchor down in this time in history, man, you're just going to get swept away. Especially when it comes to, did He make us male and female? God has made it clear He has. I would encourage you, even as we, as we know that truth, as our, as our society, as our culture continues to question and bring confusion there, I would encourage you in, in conversation, we don't need to believe someone's false reality. That's not hateful, but it's actually helpful. If someone believes something that they're totally not, it's not helpful to go along with that. It's helpful in a loving and caring and gentle way to point them to the truth. Not demeaning, not hateful, with tears in our eyes. But friends, we need to take this more than ever before God made us male and female. He determines our function and purpose. God made us in His image and likeness, and so we have inherent value and worth. 
When we talk about things like caring for the unborn to looking after our elders and everything in between. The value of life. It's not a political statement as much as it is caring for what God cares and has given value to. Everyone here, you're special and have inherent value because God made you. So that's, that's, that's a biblical worldview. You're made in the image and likeness of God and you have value. The evolutionary, evolutionary worldview, the, the strong survive. Survival of the fittest. You're bigger, you're better, you just carry on. You need to know those ideas have consequences. You want to hold to a biblical worldview. You have value because you're made in the image and likeness of God. Life has value. The unborn baby has value. God made marriage between a man and a woman and blessed it. Like, wow, all this is in Genesis 1 to 11? Amazing. God made marriage and blessed it. This is on the sixth day. What happened? Every day he made it, it was good, it was good, it was good. And he made Eve to be helped me to Adam. That the two would come together as one flesh. And say, it's very good. God blessed marriage. He made it and defined it. We want to uphold that. We want to celebrate marriage. We want to pray for, fight for, and strengthen marriages. And kind of a sub-point, though it's a major one in itself, we need to understand that sex within biblical marriage is blessed, is good. I used the example before, I'll use it again, like water in the right place. Like you go to get a cold glass of water, it's great. You go to have a shower, it's great. A pipe bursts, water goes where it's not supposed to go, it's so damaging. Friends, that's, that's why God's intention is sex within the confines of a biblical marriage between a man and a woman is good and it's blessed. And every other sexual union outside of that is sin. It's damaging. Again, compare that to the, the message of the world. What the world says about sexual intimacy. What are we going to believe? What are we going to hold to? What are we going to teach the next generation? Because friends, we need to see another, another huge point. Sin wrecked everything. One act of disobedience led to separation from God. And following Genesis chapter 3 is Genesis chapter 4. Cain and Abel, particularly Cain, telling us sin, how bad is it? The first two brothers, one killed the other. That's how bad sin is. We need to have a right view of the world, a right view of self. I talked about back then about we need a right diagnosis like say if i go to see the doctor and it's i have like a hurt knee he's like we'll, we'll put a band-aid on what if i go and I, I need some tests i'm not feeling very well i actually have cancer going throughout my whole body a band-aid on it is nothing it's garbage friends we need to see that sin affects everything except affects our hearts and our lives and the sickness of sin we cannot deal with if we truly understand how bad, how broken everything is, man, we need a Savior, Jesus Christ. That is our only hope. And as we look at our world, as we look at all that happens, we need to see this is because of sin. And the only answer is Jesus Christ. It's not, hey, if we change our environment, 
If we get the right politician in, people have a better upbringing. No, we still have wicked hearts. We need a savior. Sin wrecked everything. Because of that, wow, we need Jesus. God punishes sin. We see it throughout Scripture as we look at the flood. Only eight people survived. The rest, God's judgment upon them. His righteous judgment to punish sin. We need to understand it's, it's God's mercy that that judgment doesn't come upon all of us again. And in His mercy, He's hoping that more people would come to know Jesus Christ in His mercy and in His kindness. But God punishes sin. He's, and, he, and He is just. I want you to see, to remember, God is over man. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. We see that creation. In the beginning, God. He's the one who made everything. We see it at Babel. The Tower of Babel. Man's like, hey, we're going to build a tower to the sky. We're going to be like, like God ourselves. God shows up. They're dispersed. They have other languages. God is sovereign. We see it in Abraham, the calling of Abraham. From Ur of Chaldees. It's pagan idol worshiper, God calling him. God is sovereign. Friends, if we were to think of like two pictures, I don't know if you ever heard of Atlas. Greek mythology is like holding the world upon his shoulders. Holding the sky. Or the heavens. Yeah, okay, thank you for that. But so he's trying to hold everything up. What should be the picture of the Christian? That's not, that's not it. God is sovereign. The picture of the Christian should be us on our knees to the one who holds everything. Because God is sovereign. He has it. Oh, I need to take that truth today and in the days to come. And lastly, I want us to see though sin entered the world, God had a plan. God has a plan. I mentioned Genesis 3.15 talking about one coming from the descendant of Eve to crush the head of the snake. We looked at genealogies, the importance of genealogies in Scripture. What is it? Who is going to be the one? Who's going to be the Messiah from Abraham? He has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. He has 12 sons from that. One of them, Judah. Judah's not a good guy in the Bible. And Judah, David. And then the genealogies exist pointing us who is going to be the one. And ultimately it's Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth. And after that, genealogies stopped because the one came. God's plan for the world. The one to deal with the curse. The one to pay for sin. The one to make us right with God. The one to give us life through Him taking our sins upon Himself and giving His life for ours. What, do you, what can you do in response to that, friends? Again, it's surrender. It's your life for Christ. Everything I have, Lord, is yours. Seek to be obedient to Him. Continue to let God's Word shape your heart and mind and the way that you live. And just want to encourage you, keep building a biblical worldview. Those are all like significant. Which point do you take out from Genesis 1 to 11? Like, and I missed many. Like, they're all so significant, friends, in the day and age in which we live. Kind of my challenge for the summer, for 
anyone that's here, like, how do you build a biblical worldview? By reading the Bible. By sitting underneath the preaching of the Bible and the Holy Spirit changing and transforming your heart by that. So I'd encourage you to keep building a biblical worldview. If you have never read Genesis, it's kind of a challenge for the summer. Read the rest of Genesis. For, for others, I would encourage you to read the Psalms this summer. Read the Psalms. Have the Psalms be part of your language, part of your heart. Or, or put just another place you could go to. Read one of the Gospels. Spend the summer, continue to like think on, pray on, meditate upon Jesus Christ. And continue to develop a biblical worldview. It's not like, okay, okay, got it going. No, we're constantly doing that. We're constantly being influenced by the world. How to think, how to act. We want to be influenced more by the Spirit, through the Word, through the church. Lord, change us, transform us. So I pray He would do that in us. If you want to bow with me, and I'll, I'll close this time, excuse me, time in prayer. Oh Lord, what a blessing it has been to go through uh, Genesis 1 through 11. What a blessing it has, even just think on Abraham, how you called him. Lord, I praise you that you call, you call us when we're not looking for you. You call the weak and the broken. Those who don't have it together, Lord, you seek to save the lost. I praise you for that. I pray you seal this word in our hearts, Lord. There's so many truths. Oh God, I pray would more and more be formed in our hearts and our lives. That we be able to live obedient lives for you. But thank you that you're so kind and, and merciful, Lord. Although we don't do it perfectly, you give us kindness and grace. Oh Lord. Be glorified, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please join me in saying to respond.